0: Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store, Covent Garden in London. Please welcome our guest moderator, Ollie Charles. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome this evening to the Meet the Filmmaker session with Desiree Akhavan for Appropriate Behaviour. Um, to begin with this evening, we're gonna watch the trailer for the film. We introduce Desiree Akhavan. Um, Oh, just to begin with, just to kind of give these guys a brief background, before appropriate behavior, what were you up to? How did you get into film?
1: Okay, um, so let's see. I was at film school. I went to NYU for a graduate degree in directing, and while I was there, I made a web series called The Slope with my girlfriend at the time that we co-wrote, co-directed, Everything it. And while I was making that, I was having a really fantastic experience because it was so low-fi. You know, we would write on Monday, shoot for two hours on Wednesday, edit Saturday for a couple of hours, it would just go online. It was so fast and satisfying in that way to share something so quickly. And during film school, we were incredibly precious with our work. Uh, you know, we spent an entire year making a 10-minute film that, like, unless you shot it on 16 millimeter, you had no worth as an artist. And uh, that experience was really frustrating. So the show opened me up to wanna make a film with that kind of energy of not censoring myself or thinking in my head. Like I say this a lot, but every time I'd set up a frame uh, in film school for a short film, I would get paralyzed with fear. I'd say like, oh my God, would Ang Lee approve that frame? And the answer is no, Ang Lee would never have made appropriate behavior and that's okay. And I think that's what making a web series taught me. And so while we were making the second season of The Slope, I started writing the screenplay to Appropriate Behavior, and uh, that's when I partnered up with my producer, who's UK-based, and once I had written a draft, we came together and widened the scope of it as partners. And I think that partnership, without that partnership, I couldn't have made the film.
0: So I suppose that leads quite easily on to talking about appropriate behavior. So where did the inspiration for the story come from? Is it based on your life or is it based on people you know? Kind of where did the story itself come from?
1: Yeah. God, show of hands, who's seen the film? Just so I get a sense. Okay. A good chunk. All right. Um, This is going to be boring for those of you who haven't. Uh, So the film's about a bisexual woman who is trying to win back her first girlfriend while coming out to her Iranian family. And it takes place in New York, which is where I'm from, and I've lived my entire life. So when I was writing the screenplay, I had come out to my parents recently, like maybe a year or two before then, as so I was dealing with the aftermath of that, and I had, uh, I had ended a relationship. That was like a rough breakup. So I wasn't at that moment digesting the emotions, but I was sort of in that like weird floaty aftermath period of like, okay, that just happened. And I had never seen anything that reflected my experience of having loved and lost, which was of course like super specific. There aren't that many bisexual Iranian American filmmakers in New York right now. They, they come to the screenings so though. There are like, they exist. They're just like in Berlin, uh, all of them. They're like 14 in Berlin, I swear to God. Um, they're all hotter than me.
0: <laughs> so you're like leading the way, clearly. Well, I'm leading the way. Leading I way. I don't know.
1: They do speak German, so they beat me in that. Um, it's God's language. So. We, uh, what happened? So, okay, so is it autobiographical? Yes and no. I mean, it was like themes in my life that I cared about, but that's not my relationship. My girlfriend was not like that. She had a really good sense of humor and she wasn't so political or sensitive. Um, The issues we had are not the issues in the film. It would have been too much of a diary entry to make it so literal. But at the end of the day, uh, the character in the film is very much like a heightened version of my best and worst qualities and it's very, very personal, but it's not autobiographical. And for some reason in my head, there's a huge distinction between the two.
0: Um, I'm just intrigued, so I'm intrigued to know, then, you you speak about, in the film, sex, quite candidly. And you, you speak about the film is based, you know, in part of parts of qualities of you and that sort of thing. Were you ever afraid of talking about sex on screen? You know, as, as, a, as a female filmmaker, that's something that people I think still today are a little bit like shocked at, or, although more people are doing it.
1: You think as a female filmmaker?
0: I think, I think traditionally, scarily enough, there's still a when selection think, of the audience.
1: When I think of my favorite sex scenes, I think of female filmmakers like Andrea Arnold, uh, she has shot both in Red Road and in Fish Tank. Katherine um, Brela. And Fat Girl, and I mean every other film she's made, but I particularly love that film. I, I think that women go there in a way that because they don't have that pressure of masculinity and what that means and how you're supposed to impose that uh, through your dick on people, sorry. I was like, I'm gonna watch my mouth. That women don't have that same pressure. So when I see uh, films by women, the conversation about sex is a far more honest one. And I never felt pressure. Because to me, those are my gems. I love shooting sex scenes. And I think that's what, I, I'm, was, I'm working on a script right now and my producer and I were co-writing it. And today we were mapping out the sex one of the sex scenes and we were like, oh, the rest of the film has to live up to this. Like this is what we're gonna do really well. And now we have to bring up like 90 minutes of narrative just to meet this like 10 minutes of fucking, which is hard. I think it's such it's such a missed opportunity when people make expected banal sex scenes like it's it's a moment where people are so honest and and why would you not milk that for everything it's worth i don't know uh like lust caution is a really good example of of course that's film is like really graphic sex and i don't think you need to be graphic to be good but so much is communicated between the characters in that moment or in those like I don't know, 20 minutes of moments when they're having sex. And, but then, you know, there's a film like uh, Blue's Warmest Color, which I otherwise really like, but I don't think anything is communicated that's new in those scenes. Uh, but, you know, everyone has very violently strong reactions, positive or negative, to that. So, what do I know?
0: I think this could be a good chance to go into the first clip. Oh, think? yeah. yeah.
1: Um, well, this scene, I wouldn't say that it's a sex scene as much as a comedic moment around. Sex, uh, but it comes up early in the film, and it's to uh, depict these two women in a relationship who are having trouble keeping the spice alive. How, what do they say? Like keeping it spicy in the bedroom. Is it a, is it, oh. I don't know. Yeah, We've spicy. never had that problem. Yeah. Clearly, we don't <laughs> even know the vernacular. Let's let's roll that clip. Yeah. What about safe you? word? Like the word safe word as our safe word? Let's cut out the middleman, because what happens if you forget your safe word? Okay, then the safe word is safe word. Great. Let's do this. What's the scenario? I'm your tax auditor. Okay. Miss? Yes? Can you please fill out this form? What seems to be the problem? I don't have any of my receipts from June until August. and I'm gonna have to be punished. That's actually easily remedied if you just fill in the larger expenses in Section C and cross-check them with Section B. Maxine. What? You are killing the sexy. So
0: to begin with, were you always gonna play Shireen?
1: Yeah, uh, I wrote it for myself. It was something that it would have been really hard to make the film. I think that's like the heart of it is something that's so honest and personal, so it would have been pretty disingenuous to hire like a hotter looking version of me who's <laughs> like Egyptian and uh, bring in it. Maybe that woman who played Carmen on L Word, she's half Iranian, so I'm sure she could have done it a lot better than me, but it would have had a completely different meaning. And so much of it is about... Uh, Representing yourself and having something to say when you're constantly by your culture and by every aspect of the world, you know, even like being a female filmmaker, being a, an Iranian woman, being, uh, you know, I'm trying to think what else is working against me. Uh, too tall. I don't know. But like I feel like constantly you're having like, a door shut and you're facing, like, shut up, stop talking, stop sharing. And this was the ultimate F to that, to say, like I'm not only going to do this, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and say things that are like ugly to share. I'm going to put my face on it.
0: And what about the rest of the cast? Did you know the cast beforehand or did you audition? How, how did that come about?
1: I knew a lot of the cast. Um, Rebecca Henderson, who plays Maxine in the clip we just saw, was an acquaintance of mine who I just asked to do a favor for me. I, I wanted her to do a reading of it. I didn't think she was right for the part, but she was the only person I knew who wasn't working at that moment. So I was like, Will you do this? And she did it as a favor to me. And then it went so well that it was a really I mean we still oddly enough audition Maxine's I was like which is so strange it really shows that you should follow your gut and I think as a first time filmmaker that's one of the many pitfalls that you you doubt your gut a lot and it's a waste of time too and then as you do this it's like a muscle that you like exercise more and more and you're like all right I'm gonna keep going with my instincts now and stop wasting so much time uh, but we auditioned a lot of women to Play Magazine. And it was a lot of like very beautiful TV actresses who came in with like a backwards cap and like baggy pants. And it was like, you know blackface? It was like gay face. It was amazing. It was like they couldn't empathize with the activity of like being a woman who could fall in love with another woman. So they had to dress like a clown. <laughs> or like Bart Simpson. Like it was like a button. They were like, put the chair backwards. And they were so angry. And I was like, what? Lesbians have you met? <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, we had an amazing casting director that I really loved. And what's so cool about casting a feature or anything, casting anything, is that you see like maybe ten different versions of your film every day. Like the Lifetime made-for-TV version. I don't know what that is here. Or like, like the Comedy Central version. Like the, uh, like the art house. Uh, maybe like the Berlin version. Like like each. <laughs> different type came in and it's just a matter of curating your taste and being like all right this is the version the desiree version and but yeah casting was really fantastic because i had a really great casting director named Alison swartziak but um hallie pfeiffer who plays um, crystal the blonde best friend in the film is my childhood best friend Uh, and she's an actress a working actress in new york and a playwright so i wrote it for her and she did me a really big favor by doing it
0: and what about um scott adsit
1: yeah, that was just luck. Uh, actually, I think we, we offered the role to Scott. And I didn't write it with him in mind. I wrote it with like an actor friend of mine in mind. And he moved to LA like a week before shooting. And we were scrambling, and we made this offer to Scott. And at first, he said no. And then I think his girlfriend had see- saw the slope and said, you should read the script. And it was really amazing that she watched the slope and made him read the script because you would not have done it. And he's so fantastic and talented and like such an advocate for young comedians. So I was very lucky to have him, but I didn't know him. And it was just a shot in the dark to his agent.
0: So you've spoken a little bit about Shireen and a little bit about the story itself, but to be more specific, like the character of Maxine, is she based on anyone you know, or is she, how did that character come together?
1: Well, the basis was, you know, it was like, what would, who would be able to fall in love with Shireen and then not be able to withstand any of her personality? So that became the challenge. And it's like, so we need to get them from A to B, from like, well, I mean, not in that order because the film's not chronological, but as I was writing it, I, I looked at it chronologically, and I imagined like, well, who's the person who could have fun and be attracted to that sense of humor and that weirdness? but then also at the end of the day have a limit and that limit be being closeted which was like a really convenient dramatic device and I was not ever living with someone in closeted I was never like the, I came out when it was time to come out and it wasn't a problem in my relationships but I thought that it was just like a cheap device to be honest so uh So I guess with Maxine it was like, all right, I want her to be fun but also have really strong political beliefs and to not have a family beyond, like her birth family not be a part of her life because then her gay family is her family. And if something comes to threaten that, then she couldn't, that would just, it it wouldn't be a consideration. She would have to get out of that relationship no matter how much fun she had with someone. But then the thing about Like you inject bits of your life here and there. And one of the moments I wanted to inject, like there's a scene where they smoke weed together and they say, I love you for the first time. And that was a memory of mine. Not exactly, but that time when you're with someone and you're like, oh my God, we have fun the same way. Like, we're the same kind of stone person is the line from the script. And it's like, that was something that I was like, OK, that's what I know. That was the kernel of this woman, is the woman who could have that conversation and save the day and like be butch enough to get the weed from the weed dealer, but soft enough to like not have those strong, like, don't touch me gender divides in sex. You know, Who is that woman? And then it built around that. But the very kernel of it was that one scene, which was one of the first scenes I wrote. Um, which is like, yeah, one of those, like, I can't believe I'm so lucky to know this person scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So for for everyone that's in the audience who've watched the film, I'm sure they'll agree with me that one of the absolute most memorable scenes in the film is the threesome, which is an incredible scene for so many reasons. But I'd just be intrigued to know sort of how you came to choreograph that? How it was to film that? What it was to oh, direct the. Oh man, you've heard me say this so it.
1: many times. You're such a good actor that you're asking me as though you're really. I've interested. I've never heard the answer to this. <laughs> um, so the threesome scene started. Let's see. I storyboarded that. I don't storyboard, uh, but I storyboard sex scenes, and I find that that me as an actor, I feel more comfortable when things are storyboarded. I feel like I can communicate really clear to my cinematographer. It's just a lot easier, and. We choreographed our movements, myself and the actors. And what was fantastic, uh, another thing I find is it's very scary as a first-time director to shoot sex scenes. But then if you're in them, it's not scary at all because <laughs> you're doing the hardest bit. So uh, I was very comfortable. And also, you know you have to like pull the weight in the room, the weight of uh, being cool with it. So it was very important to me that I set a tone and so the actors and i knew this choreography very well but then i just told chris teague my cinematographer to i just said i want a profile like i want to cut back and forth between two shot and profile shot like these this is the coverage i want but i was very loose with him and what was amazing and what we discovered once he started filming it was that The only reason the scene works is because of his positioning and he was able to find my face within the other two bodies in a way that I hadn't anticipated and that really to me is the prime example of everyone being part of the storytelling and bringing their best to the table. Um, I think it works because all the departments were doing their best and the other actors were really selling it and um, that's the funny thing about Making a film is you get all the credit when you're the director, but that really is Chris's like shining moment. Uh, when I see that, I think of, of his work. And um, I think of my producer who, you know, after I watched the first take of it, it was really graphic. Like it were, looked really graphic if you don't, if you look at the unedited version, just the footage. And I remember I freaked out and I pulled my producer aside and I said, like, Shut it down, shut it down. This is, this is really, I'm not going to make like a Skinamax movie like a softcore porn um, and she was like trust me this is where it works trust me so that's what it is to like make a film like this especially when you star in it um, it was other people's thumbprints on the screen
0: so with the the story itself you know it's so rare that we see like a bisexual character on screen um, was I, I, was that something, were you trying to make a political statement? Was there, was there, a, I don't know, was there was there a motive, a real motive behind telling that story and why do you think, you know, we don't have so many stories of bisexual characters?
1: Okay, I think I'm the world's laziest activist. Like I can't help but be an activist because of the nature of who I am and what I do. Um, I do think it's really important to so I think that there's something like very tacky about the term bisexuality and calling yourself that. Like, it's to say like, hey, I'm a big slut, what about you? Like when you say I'm gay, I'm a homosexual, it's like, I fight the good fight. But if you say like I'm bisexual, you're like, I can't keep my legs closed. And that feels shitty. And that's why I insist on saying it so much. Because it's like a word shouldn't have that kind of power over me. A word shouldn't mean that it does. Like it, I decide what bisexual means, so that's why I say it, and that's why I care to have this character be bisexual, and not a lesbian, because that's not my story, and I feel I feel a lot of guilt. And have felt a lot of guilt not being a lesbian in all my lesbian relationships, and then like when I date guys, I'm like, oh God, I hurt the cause, and that's bullshit. And I shouldn't feel that way. And so it's very important to to be honest about those things. But do I think I'm like making like like it's it's storytelling, and storytelling is super powerful. Uh, But I hate to be like grandiose and say like. This is changing the world, or like, like if I were not bisexual, then I would not be telling these stories. I, this is what I know, and it's important to me that I tell queer stories and not some like middle-aged white dude. So, I don't know.
0: Later on down the line, maybe. What? Later on down the line, maybe. No, no. <laughs> I will tell the
1: story of the middle-aged white man yeah. and his struggle yeah. like sideways too.
0: Um, what was your? So you've spoken a little bit about um, when you were writing the scripts and you'd recently come out to your, to your family. What was your family's reaction to appropriate behavior? I mean, have they all seen it? And, oh, yeah. And
1: my family came to Sundance, which was really fun. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. So my family is incredibly supportive. And it was a really like full journey circle that we had to fast forward because my work is so public. So when I came out to them, it was awful. And we—it was a very strained situation for a while, and then I made the slope, which was this trickle-down effect to everyone in their life finding out that I was gay, and um, they really had no choice. It was like my dad explained to me once too. He was like, "We could choose to disown you, or we could really embrace this," and they didn't want anyone. To shame them, they sort of have this like fake it till you make it mentality that I embrace as well. And my dad has this saying that he says all the time, and you can apply it to anything. And it really is my personal motto. It's fuck them if they can't take a joke. And he says it constantly, but like to things like I'm like, there's no bread, and he's like, fuck them if they can't take a joke. Like it's not always appropriate, but he like he'll like I didn't get into any colleges. (laughs) Fuck them if they can't take a joke. It's like "Mm, that doesn't work. Uh, but yeah, that's the way they saw it. Once they realized that it was so public, and it was really rough. Like, and while I was writing the script, it wasn't great. They were like, my mother once said to me, she was like, "Does all your work have?" To, and we were outside, we were walking in Park Slope, which is such a gay neighborhood in Brooklyn. And she was like, "Does all your work have to be L?" And she whispered L, as though it were code for something. That was like between season one and two of The the Slope, and she was coming to our fundraiser, was like so supportive, but at the same time, it was like, I'm so ashamed, I can't even say the word lesbian out loud. It is terrifying me. But then, you know, they're, oh God, I'm using so much bad language, I'm really sorry, but they're bigger star fuckers than homophobes because uh, I started getting a lot of big press and it was so exciting to them and they had been such supporters of my pursuing filmmaking and such cheerleaders all the way that they got swept up in the press. And like, my mom fr- like, got so excited. She framed like, this big blurb in a real estate magazine that was like, Park Slope film, making, done. It was like, film maybe going to be made in Park Slope one year. And then she framed it. It was really sweet. Um, and then we got invited. The, like, the final straw where I was like, oh, they've turned around. And like, they were actively sharing this was that Ingrid and I from the Slope got invited to the White House for gay Pride a gay pride celebration. And uh, they were so proud. They were so excited and then everything shifted and they were like, we love our gay daughter. Like it was, like I was ending my last relationship and my dad was like, but what about your audience? Like he was like, he was like, you can't, you can't not be gay anymore. He was so freaked out for my career that I was like strategically gay because I found a niche in the market. Oh no, I just realized this is a podcast. I just remembered, my mom is gonna listen to this. Um, but but and I would say this even if she weren't gonna listen to it. They came to Sundance with bells on. They were so proud. They were totally enthusiastic and um, like held my hand for all of the ride, the good and the bad and the ugly. And uh, it's so people are really squeamish about because there's the film is. I don't know how to describe it. I guess there's like, it's graphic in some ways. It's honest, it shows ugliness. Like things that I really was raised to keep under wraps, especially being Iranian. And I think it's a testament to being an immigrant that in their lifetime, they had to change so much that they had to give up their country. So like, I guess it's not that much harder to accept your gay kid.
0: Um, Slight change of pace now, because it was getting no, no, it was good. It was good. Um, so you, the appropriate behaviour in the swipe. I mean, your your comedy is often compared to things like Broad City, like Girls. Numerous times, I've heard the comparison between you and Lena Dunham. Um, how does I mean, how does that make you feel to have those comparisons?
1: Well, like super honored. Those I'm really big fans of all those shows. Well two of them. <laughs> I think you just listed. <laughs>
0: That's just two, yeah.
1: But like anything being shot right now in Brooklyn for the most part is like pretty cool. Uh I wanna like I don't know, I think it's I think it's a big honor. I. whatever I say I sound I sound it's so funny. If I'm like, it's great, they're like, She is like she's a copycat. And if I say like, meh, it's sexist, they're like, Desiree Akamana hates Lena Dunham. Um and it's only because there's like they're so much more famous and like known than I am that like people love to like get attention by putting Lena Dunham in the title, and I understand how things sell, so it 's fair enough. Uh, it 's a huge honor. I think that there's room for money to be made off of all these comedic female voices. And the more time that passes, you know the more movies Melissa McCarthy makes, uh, the better for our cause. So like, to be one more player in that, and even the tiniest player in the room, like, man, that is exciting to come of age at a moment like this, where there are comparables. When we were financing appropriate behavior, there weren't any comparables for a movie this low budget starring a woman about uh, queer subject matter. I mean, it's still no queer subject matter, but still, it's pretty cool that it's these things are being made and uh, that man, like, when I was growing up, there was only one way you could look. There are so many ways to look now. Like, I I know that's such a simplistic way to put it, but there are, and you're still a human being. I grew up feeling like I was not a regular, normal human being because of the way I looked and that my life would be forever handicapped because of it. But if I saw Lena and the Broad City Girls and saw how, like, amazing they were and in, like incredibly funny incredibly cool incredibly attractive I would have my, like my life would have been different
0: I think we're gonna open it out to you guys now so if anyone's got any questions there's someone with a roving mic I think there's a question in the middle here
1: hi hi um, question what was the perception in the Iranian community about your film if you've followed up, or I looked into no it? I have no idea. I really don't know, and I get asked a lot, and it's like, where do I go to find out the perception of me? Do I just Google my name at Iran? Iranian Someone who reception? who watches Iranian TV, I guess, if your parents have those Iranian They cables. don't have the channels, but I don't think I'm on the channels. Like, the so LA people just want, like- they ignore your existence, basically. They ignore my existence? I don't know. Maybe. Like, I don't know. That's the funny thing about making things that are public is like you don't have a direct relationship to the people who consume it. So like Man, I don't have a better way to put it. I don't have a direct relationship at screenings, the meanest things that I hear are from Iranians, but that's a cultural thing. Iranians just want to like hater's going to hate, you know? Like I mean, I love Iranians, but they they want to they have, they, they're looking for their gotcha moment. Like every time, like they're like, you know that's an Arab song you had no Noroos, it was an Arab song, it wasn't Farsi, do you know that? Do you speak Farsi? Because I speak Farsi. And I'm like, yeah, no, I know, I couldn't afford the rights, man. Like, just be cool. Like, they, they, they really wanna like, but then they also wanna be fans. So like, I get a lot of like nice emails from Iranians. Like I get, I mean, not that many, but you know, I get a handful. Uh, like it's a community that I I love and I I, I don't know. But then also like you shouldn't I don't think it would be healthy to concern myself with with, like wondering like pull of hands, who thinks I'm great? Like yeah, I'm sure it is nice to have a gay voice in the mix and whether or not people like it or want to avoid it, like I'm very proud to be an Iranian gay voice. And an Iranian woman making things. Or an Iranian person. If I were like a straight Iranian dude, I would still be proud. Because how many Iranians do you see like outside of like not without my daughter? Like that was the only film I'd seen as a kid.
0: Uh, any other questions? Um, I was just going to ask um, when you were at film school, like what filmmakers um, kind of inspired you while you were coming up and stuff.
1: Um, yeah, I really love I, all those filmmakers still inspire me. So Noah Baumbach, I really like his work. I remember when I. I saw Kicking and Screaming, because Hallie, my best friend from childhood, was in The Squid and the Whale. And I remember she got cast like two years before they shot. And I was so excited. And I I saw Kicking and Screaming, and I was like, oh, this is how my, like, I wrote a lot of plays growing up. And I was like, oh, this reminds me of like the better version of the plays I write, uh, like the less masturbatory version. And um, let's see, Catherine Brilla, Mike Lee. I really love. Um, Life is Sweet, it's one of my favorites. Uh, Andrea Arnold, Lynn Ramsey, Michael Haneke, like I like pretentious filmmakers, I guess, like really high class shit. Um, Oh, but growing up my favorite film was Muriel's Wedding and that was a film that made me wanna make movies. I remember thinking like, I love So I really love films that walk that very fine line between tragedy and comedy. And when someone can make like, especially like Australians with their slapstick, but it's so mean underneath and it's so, like I don't think a joke matters unless it has that kind of depth and uh, closeness to like human suffering and complete loneliness. Uh, And that's what that film does for me. I really love it.
0: Any other questions? Hey. Uh, I was wondering when you were writing the drafts, because it's such a personal story, and even though it's not entirely autobiographical, it's personal. It's about characters. Did you find throughout the drafts that it got a little away from being oh, honest, yeah. and then you had to get bring it back in?
1: No, no. And it's never like bring. Oh, not away from honest. With each draft, it gets further away from the truth of your life, um, and it takes on a life of its own that makes it convenient for a 90-minute narrative. And craft starts to play a bigger role than um, what sparked the idea in the first place. And that's great. I think that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, you're supposed to constantly serve the narrative, whatever fits the film. The film is like a baby, and you just have to like listen to what it needs and wants. And you can't strong arm something else into it if you're like, no, but actually, like, he was more like this. Uh, that doesn't matter. Um, what was the question? <laughs> I don't even remember where I was going with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I never feel like I have to bring it back to anywhere that it was before. Because it's still, because, like, the idea of honesty doesn't, it doesn't mean uh, autobiography. Like, honesty doesn't mean that it was close to my life in an honest way. Honesty means, like, that that force behind it, that emotion that you were trying to capture, the, the truth of that scenario as opposed to the saccharine narrative you saw before in 40 other movies and you're just kind of like regurgitating uh oh, we know this will pull out emotional moment from your audience that's dishonesty
0: we've got time for one more question from you guys
1: hello Hi. um i'm a screenwriter
0: and the stuff that i write is also quite personal and i was wondering do you ever like in your own writing if you're writing something personal kind of feel like Is this going to be interesting to anyone other than me? (laughs) And how you kind of push past that or how you deal with that kind of insecurity?
1: Yeah, no, I'm never insecure. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, you're amazing. No, I'm very insecure. Um, I'm really, really lucky and she was supposed to be here with me today. And I'm really sad. She got tickets to the audience and she was like, fuck that shit. I'm not going to the Apple store with you, which is like a huge honor. We're both really honored to be invited. Um, but my producer, Cecilia Frigiole, uh, she is my partner in all ways, except sexually. She's married to a dude. Uh, but she, she reads everything I write. And it's together that we find what resonates with a larger audience, that her life couldn't be more different from mine, yet we share a similar taste you know, we see the world in a similar way, even though, you know, she was raised in Italy and uh, has like, you know, I think she read War and Peace, like in the womb and, you know, I grew up on the Brady Bunch. So but for some reason, we were such fans of each other. So she reads everything I write. And I think having a partner in this line of work is really important. Some people do it really well alone, but I don't. I need someone by my side that I trust and who gets me. And if she reads something, she opens my eyes to like, you just get a different perspective on your work. And the minute I write to please her, I write to like make her laugh or make her cry or whatever else she does when reading my work, but I want to impress her. And when I, like, I I imagine how would she see this? Because it can't be for me. Like it's for me and it's, I trust my taste, but at the same time, like I'm developing this muscle of like, what does the third person think? And can this be relatable on a wider level? And some things can't. But you have to be brutally honest. So if you don't have a partner, and that's like a very specific relationship that's hard to cultivate. It just falls into your lap or not. But um, if you don't, then you have to be honest with yourself about you know, what is this serving to? And like, am I the victim in this moment? Like, I think there's like, whenever I watch something and I, I feel like it's someone doing a bad job of a first person narrative, I feel like, oh, you really are playing your little violin. Like, I am meant to feel so sorry for you and you're such a victim in this scenario. And I think that the f- most fun we had in the shoot was when my character is the most pathetic. But it has to be a fine balance too.
0: Okay, so before we wrap up, just to, Remind everyone, Appropriate Behaviour is out now on, uh, on demand, you can get it on iTunes, uh, but it's also available on DVD, so you can take Desiree home with you. Yeah. Um, um, but please tell everyone about the film, because I'm sure Desiree would agree, but with indie film, like, we, need, you know, we need you guys, who clearly love it, and come here and tell people to go and tell everyone <laughs> it's else It's so about cheap
1: it. when I do this, I'm like, I'm poor! <laughs> I can do No, No, I mean, it's it's not just that. Okay. yes, I'm poor and I don't get paid. But I think what's important to know, and I'd like to spread this, because I didn't know this before I started making films, like even in film school, I was like, let's pirate that shit, Um, is that when you pay for something, you're casting a vote. You're saying, I want more of that being made. So when you pay to go see Jurassic Park on opening weekend, you're saying, I want more of that being made. So be strategic with how you vote. Lude. Drop the mic. Boom. Couldn't
0: have been said any better. <laughs> should we um should we show them the last clip? Three
1: hundred dollars on a garter belt. May I we're just looking actually yes. Um I'm looking for the grown up underwear of a woman in charge of her sexuality and not afraid of change. I've got that. Okay. This just came in.